Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Space Junk. I'm Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and today we're going to be talking with Sean League from SpaceFab. You guys may remember we talked to them back in October of 2018. This is a company, folks, that are that's building a space telescope for use by everybody, amateur astronomers, just regular folks. It's going to be accessible through an app. It's going to have all kinds of really cool capabilities, both for imaging deep space astronomy and for looking on the Earth. And we talked to Sean last year about the some of the details, the technical specs of the telescope, things like this. And today we're going to get an update to see what's happening, what's new, has launch date changed, is there any new technology on board? So stick around. This should be a great conversation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. All right, we are now recording. Ooh, look smash how smash that record button. Smash yeah, that record. I, mash it. It is smashed. <laughs> why why is your why is your uh, waveform here so huge? Are you yelling? Big, I no, no, I just happen to have a superior voice and Which, it comes through in a way that is clear and and resounding. If the goal is to sound like a prepubescent child, I agree. Superior. <laughs> then you've made it. <laughs> you are the winner. Oh, yay. Okay. Prepubescence, here I come. All right. Well, good. Uh, we are back talking with Sean League, the co-founder of SpaceFab. And I got to tell you, I've been looking forward to this. Uh, been looking forward to this hangout slash podcast recording. Let me just start again. Been looking forward to this podcast because I want to get an update. I want to learn about this program and this project. And um, I don't know, Dustin, do you want to maybe reintroduce what SpaceFab is for those who didn't catch our first podcast? Because we did this back in, I believe it was October of last year. Uh, we first talked to Sean. And I don't know if you want to take some time to reintroduce what the program and project is. Or do you just want to go? Yeah, go no, let's, let's talk about it. Sean, uh, right. first, welcome. No, thank you. Welcome. Thanks for yeah, having me welcome, back. Welcome, Sean. Yeah, yeah. It's uh so so you know Sean used to be here at OPT and uh decided that he was going to build a space telescope instead. And so we said, Sean, we want in. <laughs> we want in. We need to be involved. Um and so he was nice enough to say, Come on, let's do this. And so here in front of me right now, I have a space telescope. This thing, I don't know how you like go through life without just being like you should have the hugest smile. Like I bet your face just hurts <laughs> from smiling all the time. Looking at this, I'm such like a child right now looking at this, you know? Yeah, my wife's like, why, why are you so happy? What the hell? Yeah, because you built a space telescope. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's how right. you're so happy. Um, yeah, it's sitting on the, the podcasting studio table here in front of me. And it's all powered up. It's got the filter wheel in here. You control it with your cell phone. And the idea is, Sean, and I, I want you to talk about it, but you wanted to give... Um, access to a space telescope to the general public that was the idea right that's right yeah and so how do you go from the idea of you know i want to it like it because it might as well be an idea like hey guys like i want to touch the sun <laughs> you know it's like well yeah sure but it's probably not going to happen how did you make this happen boy it's a lot of steps well it, first you just start out with you know hey i've been doing astronomy and telescopes my whole life uh Want to put one into orbit, get rid of the atmosphere and light pollution and all that nonsense. Yeah. And uh, we can observe 24 hours a day. Uh, and there's a big demand for uh, space telescopes. As you can tell, Hubble's full and booked for years ahead of time. But amateurs have no chance of ever getting on the Hubble or any professional telescopes like that. So I thought, uh, you know, why not give that opportunity to anyone that wants to use it? Do you consider yourself an amateur or a professional? Well, kind of both. I've done both. And um, yeah. But I see both sides of the coin, yeah. Um, and uh, and I sympathize with both too. So, yeah. and and this this telescope can uh, is good for both. It's actually good for amateurs and professionals. We're we're making it a professional quality instrument. So it, we're designing it as though professionals are going to use it, but give access to the amateurs. Okay. Yeah, and so th 
this um, this telescope, and we've already done a podcast talking about the the general details of what it can do. I think we should cover a little bit of it again, okay. um, but because it's changed, right? It's evolved as the process, like kind of from uh, concept to completion. There's a lot of evolution in projects like these. For one, it's never been done before, right? Right. I mean, this is true innovation. Um, but you've you've modified things, made things better. This doesn't look like the original proto- prototype we had. It looks slightly different, and uh, it's got a lot of new upgrades. Yeah, so we, we've had to change a lot of things. Um, you know, just the stresses of launch caused us to change. You know how we how we design things. Yeah. I had an original design, and then we hired a uh, mechanical engineer, and we went through and run, ran simulations, and said, "Well, no, you can't have these sharp corners like this. You know, going to cause cracks and stresses." So we changed that, and so it's a more rounded shape now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but we also created larger access uh, uh, on the sides with these plates. These are called PEKK. It's a type of plastic. It's just as strong as aluminum, but 40% the, the weight of aluminum. So uh, it saves us on mass, and mass is what costs you the money. So, But it, what, by taking that plate off, I can have access to all the equipment inside without tearing the entire satellite apart to fix one thing and put it all back together. Mm-hmm. And when you tear things all apart and put them back together, that's when mistakes can happen. So right. we want to make it as simple as possible to correct things and, um, and upgrade things as, as we need to. Um, so we've also added... Since the last time, you can see that it's, it looks different, but uh, we, we actually have the filter wheels operational and stuff now um, through the cell phone. Um, it's not quite the system that we we'll use in space because that, that system costs quite a bit more. <laughs> so, sure. Um, but uh, it, it is a good simulation or representation of what we'll actually have. And when you, when you got started in this, I mean, did you really think that this was, I mean, when you first decided like, hey, I want to build one, was it more of a this will be fun to try? Or did you really think, I can do this? I can put this thing in space and have it work? No, I, I actually thought of it as a business case right from the beginning. Um, you know, I thought there is a demand for this. Mm-hmm. I, I see the demand just from being in the astronomical world for right. most of my life. Yeah. Um, in fact, I had started a company before called uh, Extended Observatory Network, which uh, our long-term goal was to put a space telescope into space. But we had to make a huge amount of money before we could do that. But right. just in the last five years, the technology has come along and the, and the launch costs have come way down so that we can go right into a business plan where we start with a space telescope instead of mm-hmm. starting with a supporting business. Right. And so you had already had experience before you ever did any of this or before you were even you were even at OPT with um, a lot of the things like this has laser communication. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. But you'd worked with lasers before, correct? Sure. Yeah. I was a fiber optic engineer. So I worked with uh, designing and uh, engineering uh, fiber optic rings. Um, and I also worked on uh, anti-missile lasers. Anti-missile lasers. Yeah. So uh, heat-seeking missiles. Uh, okay. That if you shoot down a helicopter or a, a American aircraft, then these yeah. would these lasers fire at the missile and will knock the missile out of the sky. Yep. So um, which type of helicopters? Uh, specifically the Chinooks. Really? And so uh, there was there was a case where a missile, this was back uh, a while back, but where missiles were fired at a Chinook and it, I know the missiles went down. Was mm-hmm. that your design? Yeah, exactly. Well, not my design, but I, I worked on that. Yeah. 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 And so those lives were saved because of those lasers, right? Yep. That's uh, unreal. That's pretty cool. So, that's really so that, cool. Yeah. yeah. So that's, tell me, how does that work exactly? I know that it has nothing to do with the satellite, but how is it taking down... Uh, missiles coming at the helicopter. So on the on helicopters, uh, most military aircraft now, they have a sensors that detect the, the plume of the, the rocket coming up at them. Right. Uh, has a sodium, sodium signature or whatever signature they're looking for. Um, and as soon as it detects that, it immediately aims a laser in that direction and fires a high-power beam at it. And it doesn't actually melt the missile or destroy the missile. It just blinds it. So on an infrared missile, you've got an infrared sensor up front that's pretty sensitive it's looking for the heat signature from the aircraft or the right helicopter it's just following that and you fire a thousand watt laser infrared laser at that that sensor and the sensor is just completely blinded and the missile will just go off course and crash into the ground so. wherever it is which is still probably relatively close to where they launched it right <laughs> <laughs> that could be bad right <laughs> yeah yeah wow that's amazing man mm-hmm. so um so when you started thinking about laser communication then you were just kind of employing some of the things you'd already worked with and knew about yeah, in fact, uh, um, we, on the spacecraft, we'll actually use some of the same technology that we use in fiber optic engineering uh, networks, um, but also from the, the laser comm system. So, you know, I helped uh, build components on the on, under microscopes, I mean, really small components. And so at least I understand how it all works. And that helps me, helps us to design the, the laser comm system in here. And, and we've come up with a system that uh, other laser manufacturers actually want to buy. <laughs> Our system because we have such good up and down response time that no one else uh, has been able to do that. 
which uh, was amazing to me. We didn't set out to do that. It's just our requirements that we needed forced us to, to make something that wasn't available. Mm -hmm. So laser communication, um, I know nothing about it at all. I, like my, uh, the way I would imagine this working is like two people in houses across the street from each other, shining flashlights at each other through the window. Like one, one flash is yes. Two flashes is no <laughs> yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, is it just a, is it the same kind of idea? Is it like uh pinging almost, you know, uh, almost like Morse code, I guess. In well, there, there are many different uh, ways to communicate with uh, with laser. <clears throat> it's basically, as far as the the, the communication is going across, it's the same as a TCP/IP connection uh, on the ground. Um, you have, you know, where two computers connect to each other, and they're basically sending zeros and ones back and forth to, to right. communicate. Right. Well, we're using the same thing with laser. We can't use TCP/IP like computers do because we're talking such a great distance that mm -hmm. the speed of light's too slow. We wouldn't be able to confirm every packet that came down. So it's it's more of a one-way transmission, more of a like a YouTube when you're watching YouTube. YouTube doesn't check that you got every packet. It just dumps it to you. And, okay. Um, so it's more like a, a UDP, something like that. And we have the simplest way to do that is simply on-off keying. You just blink in the light on and off, just like you said with mm -hmm. the flashlight. Yeah. Of course, you're blinking on and off you know, a million times a second, not, not one or two times a second. Right. Um, that's the simplest form. And... Um, that's actually what we're employing here because it's very inexpensive. And yeah, well, I, I got really good at signaling my friends out the window. I could do about a million clicks a second. Yeah. Uh, well, we were How's your thumb doing? Yeah. After, <laughs> after a lot of energy drinks, right? You got a pretty yeah. good <laughs> It was about the same. Yeah, it was about yeah. the same. So it's not that impressive to me, but continue. Yeah. <laughs> I got, I'm a million hertz kind of guy. Yeah. <laughs> so right now, just with simple on-off keying, we're at 200 megabits per second on a single wavelength. Um, but we're actually looking at multiple wavelengths, so we can probably get that up to 800 or so in the future as we need more bandwidth for this for the satellite. Now, NASA does things like they uh, they multiplex multiple wavelengths together. They actually polarize the light. Um, they they do all kinds of tricks to make more data through the same stream. Uh -huh. But then they spend $100 million on a laser versus what well, we're going Yeah, and their infrastructure demands are quite high in terms of the things they've got to support between things like the ISS and then you know all of the space telescopes that are up and about and, and uh, rovers to Mars. So they've got quite a bit of uh, bandwidth they need to maximize. Yeah, I mean, I their last, their last test, they were transmitting 10 gigabits a second from the moon. So just that's just pretty amazing. dang good. That's pretty dang good. Well, let me ask you about infrastructure then. I mean, this is not what NASA employs. So the infrastructure for your communications network uh, for SpaceFab is not there, is it? Are you are you going to build receivers on Earth? Um, if only to... he knew a telescope company. Yeah, damn. that he could work with. Do you know where Tony? I can get a scope? <laughs> If only well, he that's had that's where I'm trying to go. I don't want to get to, what's, what, what's the... See, as the host of a podcast, what I have to do Push us is into a guide the conversation so that okay. things get said. I hear you, man. <laughs> yeah. No. No, go for it, Sean. So, yeah, so we're going to use um, probably 14-inch uh, uh, ground stations. Um, so we'll have the telescopes uh, fire up a reference laser for the satellite to, to lock onto. And then uh, as the satellite downloads its data, the, the ground station or telescope will just track the, the satellite. So the ground station part is, is pretty simple. Probably talking, I don't know, 50 grand a ground station. It's not, it's not uh, hugely expensive. So right. um, we may just put them in shipping containers and move them where, where we need to. In fact, the best places on the Earth <clears throat> for the ground stations are actually the same places that professional observatories are. So and we've gotten permission from several places to, to put our ground stations there. Yeah. Um, and we only need to actually fire the ground station once per day for about 10 minutes. Uh, so we'll have 10 minutes of infrared lasers firing up and down, and then that's over for the day. So it's not much interference either. So. And so you're looking at downloading a block of observations at, at certain times of the day then? Right, yeah. So our plan is to start out with uh, two ground stations for the first launch. And then for each successive launch, we're going to put up more ground stations uh, until we get about a dozen ground stations. What kind and of orbit? So is going while to? these things are while these observations are on the space telescope, which we should just mention that it's on it's it's based on a CubeSat twelve U form, right? So that's what you're building it to specifications for, right? So it's about yeah, a, that, it's that's based the, on a CubeSat design. 
Right. The the original one we have right now is, is a 12U cube set. We also am currently designing a larger half meter uh, version as well. <clears throat> this um, is the 12U right here. Yes, that's the 12U right there. Yeah, this thing is impressive, man. Yeah, small enough to I'll definitely post around. some pictures of this today. Yeah, it post is. something on your Instagram so people yeah. can, or on the Space Junk <laughs> Podcast Instagram so they it's, can see what it's hard for me to focus right now here talking about it. I mean, this thing is beautiful. It's you know, <laughs> yeah. sitting, you know, two feet from me and it's a space telescope. It's just it's unreal. But um yeah, so this is a twelve U. What are the other sizes? That's the largest of the the small payload that, that's the Cube largest sets, right? that they regularly make now um in fact when we started 12u was like ooh, they're gonna soon do 12u so but now 12u has become more of a regular thing uh they're talking about 27u's next um, yeah and i think that's the largest one i know of after that it's then it's called a small sat right and our our, our larger one will be actually be a small sat it won't be a cube set those are still secondary payload though right? yeah in general right yeah, uh -huh. yeah. Unless you get a small rocket like elect the Electron rocket or something by Rocket Labs, then then you'd be a major payload because their their mass is only they can only carry three hundred kilograms, so yeah. and we'd probably be one hundred and fifty. <clears throat> so this will be an eight inch uh, Dahl Kirkham um, reflector, and what kind and the imager and stuff. We talked a lot about this on the last uh, podcast, but has anything changed as far as the like the uh, resolution of the main imager or any of that stuff? Is it all pretty much the same as the last time? Well, actually, we've gotten up to it's up to two hundred and twenty millimeters, so almost nine inch now. Um, oh, it's nine inches now. Yeah, oh. that that's the max we could fit in a twelve U. <laughs> we just oh. physically can't get any larger than that. Okay. Um, yet our chips, we still have the the three main uh, chips, uh, the um, eight megapixel EMC CD that's uh, really sensitive in UV down to two hundred nanometers, and that's more for you know professional mm -hmm. um, and because there isn't any observatories in space right now that can do UV except uh, the Hubble. And uh, then we have the um, 48 megapixel main imager, and that's for taking the beautiful pictures uh, for the amateur astronomers and for ground observation. Yeah, and those are that's that's a lot of resolution. I mean, the highest resolution image I've ever posted is 16 megapixels. Wow. 16, you know, and so you're talking 48. These are, yeah. these are monster images with zero atmospheric disturbance. Right. right. And from zero space. <clears throat> so they'll be really space. clear. Exactly. Yeah. And, and yeah. this has a 0.6 arc second resolution. <laughs> and and that's before we do hyper resolution. But you know, we can actually do uh, uh, with the chips themselves. We can do dithering, and so we can get better resolution than yeah than the chip actually that's gives you. four times better resolution than mine is even capable of just by being in space. Right. You know, and then you're on top of that. You've got whatever four times the resolution almost. So it's that's massive. It's huge. Wow. And then we have the the hyper uh, spectral imager, which uh, that's what most. Uh, people are excited about <clears throat> because we can yeah. do we have so much capability with that um, everything from environmental studies uh, studying a farmer has a thousand acres and he wants to know hey what do I need to do to my crops do I need to add fertilizer or water you know instead of watering the entire field he can actually uh, take a hyperspectral image and it'll show him where what part of your field needs what and so it saves them money saves uh, environmental impact mm -hmm. um, it's that's just good all around there's no such thing as being more green than that yeah zero waste farming right it's amazing uh, what kind of orbit is this going into? Uh, so we're looking at uh, 550 kilometers um, sun synchronous. So that means that it comes over the same place at the same time every day. Yeah. You're not going to put it in a geostationary orbit right above Tony's house? No. <laughs> Be a little far away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> geostationary put us at... 25,000. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess I quick question on storage because these images are big. They're presumably uh, the... Frame rates will be relatively high, so storage will be an issue. Where do you draw on to get like space qualified? I don't know. Is it hard drives or is it solid state drives of some kind? What kind of onboard storage will there be so that when you do the data dump, it happens at a fast enough rate uh, to get it all down when you need it? Because you've got a you've got lasers which are going to get the data in high and very fast uh, data rates down to the ground but you've got to have hard drives to keep up with that too so right how what can you give us an idea of how that's been planned out on the on the cubesat yeah so so it is solid state we won't have any moving hard okay. drives for, for one thing there's no atmosphere for them to to mm -hmm. um, glide on <clears throat> but uh, it will be solid state i didn't know how i don't know how space ships your high space telescope store stuff anyway so i was just curious 
Oh, why not? I didn't know if it was hard. <laughs> didn't learn that what. in school? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, believe it or not, I don't. I, that was something I've always been curious about. I don't know the mechanics yeah. of what they use to store data on so, space, spacecraft. One thing that's different about our spacecraft, instead of having multiple computers, a computer for every part of the spacecraft, we have one main computer that runs everything. So all the data from all the components, all the cameras, um, which we've got uh, 12 different cameras, I think, on board. Uh, they they all feed back to the same to the the main computer. Plus we have the the uh, all the guidance that all feeds back to the main computer as well. So it makes you know intercommunication between the systems faster. Um, the computer has more idea of what's going on. Uh, then we to dump, dump the data. It does have a, a very f- uh, fast throughput uh, buffer, but that's more of my partner Randy. That's he's the electronics guy. Um, yeah, I'm more of the uh, the hardware and. Uh, uh, space te- the telescope design and stuff like that. So, and laser com. Uh, so he he would be the one to ask that question. But I know that he that was brought up and that is it was an issue. Of how much throughput can we get? Can we get enough throughput? And it would turn out to be no problem. So okay, um, yeah, because so IO is uh, at least with disks is is an issue. And I know that we're moving away from disks and, and more and more things now. And I'm just curious if you know what the what, right. what the performance of that is on the so space in my understanding is that it dumps it to a type of buffer and it gets ready to transmit and then when when it comes to transmit time it just dumps it all okay all right well um i just want to make a quick comment about something you had mentioned earlier in the podcast and that was that the you know you you've built this company or this this project with a business case already in mind and and one of the things that i've been noticing now is we live in an age of space billionaires where People are, you know, rich people are starting to build their own space programs like Elon Musk and on which, by the way, SpaceX, I believe, is going to launch this telescope, right? It's going to launch SpaceFab. Well, that, that was the original plan. Our, our partner was launching on a SpaceX and uh, they had given us a, a free ride. Um, but through a bunch of political shenanigans that uh, that's been put off. Uh, oh, my. So, oh, OK. So, um, so what's the new plan? So we're going on our own. <laughs> um, so we need to raise a little bit more money. Um, it's nine hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars to for a rideshare, um, and we're actually looking at the uh, the Electron rocket um, by Rocket Labs uh, for our first uh, first launch. Anyway, um, okay. we also were talking to Virgin Orbit, yeah. And uh, you know, SpaceX is, is a possibility for future launches as well. Uh, but one advantage of the the Rocket Lab was that we could leave our equipment turned on and actually monitor it during launch especially for the first one, we really want to do that. We want to see what's going on. Um, if there's anything we need to improve or, sure. you know, if so, something happens, it's like, well, what happened? You know, um, where in SpaceX, you, you're, they basically put you in a box and you have to be quiet. You can't have the power on or anything because the main payload is what's important. You know, you're just a secondary payload, so you can't interfere with the main payload. Um, so that's a disadvantage of, of the SpaceX rocket, but the SpaceX rocket has a nice, uh, sort of quiet ride, if you will. Um, it's actually got less, less G forces and, um, it's a little bit better on the spacecraft, but uh, oh, okay. So you guys are looking to raise the almost million dollars it's going to take to to get it up into orbit. Then, yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. But you made the point in the comment that uh, you know this cost has plummeted, has come way down, making your this mission possible. And I wanted to make that comment, uh, or I wanted to just make a point that this is, I think, incredibly important and an understated part of the whole future of space exploration because uh, uh, Jeff Bezos is is one who's he's made the point many times that Amazon could never have gotten off the ground were it not for the United States Postal Service. So the infrastructure was in place to allow him to start a business model that was not possible any other way with without the U.S. Postal Service and also FedEx and, and UPS and these these companies. So now the the price of getting things in orbit is is getting low enough that companies like SpaceFab can actually think about doing this not just once but you're going to have other space telescopes that follow this as well so it's a, it's an exciting time uh, to be alive i think with these business models businessmen entre- entrepreneurs like yourself and Dustin and 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 others can just think these things up and they actually become possible now. So it's, it's just an amazing time, I think, to be alive. So I just wanted to make that point because this is something that you're bringing to uh, the general public in much the same way as, I don't know if you guys heard, but just a couple of days ago, the Planetary Society unfurled Light Sail 2, which was a, mm-hmm. another crowd 
funded, uh, member funded uh, mission that uh, that was successfully deployed into into space. So this is this is just you know this is the this is just starting the ball rolling. I think. Uh, do you, do you agree? I mean, obviously you do because you started space fab. But I mean, don't you think that this is this is a great this is just a start of a really yeah. exciting business opportunity for space. Well, well, 10 years ago, you'd have had to have a billion dollars to start a space company. There was just no way around it. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and that's why, you know, when I tried to start it before, it was I had to build this entire infrastructure, this whole other business to support that. Um, only in the last five years has it been possible to actually start a, a space company with something, you know, reasonable and the millions of dollars instead of the, the billions. But not only that, the technology in this spacecraft sitting on the table wasn't available five years ago. We, mm-hmm. we couldn't have done this three years ago with what we have in there now. And uh, the technology is changing so fast and it's actually making our job easier and easier. The, the, the hard part is you design it all and then someone comes out with a new pro, new faster widget and you're like, dang it, should I put that in the spacecraft and redesign right. it again? Right. <laughs> or should I, know, I stop? Because even since October, <laughs> things have changed, yeah. haven't they? So since we last right. spoke, well, well, I want to put you on the spot and just ask you real quick. If you had to pick a technology that most enables this to, to happen, could you isolate just one thing that really made this whole thing possible or maybe a couple of things that made this possible technology-wise? Um, well, the computer, of course. The, that without Computing the, power? Yeah, the computer's amazing what you can do with a computer that's just size, you know, fits in your palm of your hand. Um, to, to run all the technology on this spacecraft with, with one one computer is just amazing. Um, the other thing is that the the chips, the CCDs and the CMOS imagers, and their cost has come way down. And for for what you can get, a forty eight megapixel imagery. I mean, right. <laughs> imagine that ten years ago. Yeah, how much does that cost? <clears throat> it doesn't even exist. You know. Um, and then GPS modules, uh, the the comms, are, like the one of the radios in here is the size of my thumbnail. It's just super tiny. So, and our laser communications, the, um, we're running, we can run up to 20 Watts and blinking on and off at four nanoseconds. That was impossible for you. you know, well, what about the weight of this thing? How much does it weigh? Uh, right now it's about 14 or 15 kilograms. Uh, we have a projected weight of 18 kilograms, but I think we can come in under that. So, um, just you know, like I said, the te- technology is like the PEKK plates. We're using those instead of, uh, aluminum. So that really reduces the weight. We're also looking at silicon carbide as our main uh, mirror and chassis that reduces our weight a lot. That's what um, I was going to go. I was going about to ask you about the optics weight. Is that very heavy? Um, no, it's actually pretty light. It's a, a, like a pound or two. So very, very light. If we went with glass, it, it would be eight or nine pounds. So it's a huge difference in weight. Well, then there's um, the stresses as far as the temperature. Well, right. the temperature variation, I just thought of that. So how, how does the uh, space telescope compensate for the temperature variations in space? Now that was actually one of the more complicated things of the whole the whole project. Okay, how do you how do you yeah, deal with this mess. this temperature? Um, one of the first things we encountered was we were going to put solar panels on the side of the spacecraft, and the problem with that is that when the sun hits the solar panels, where does all the heat go? You know, some of it's converted to electricity, but they got all that heat going into the spacecraft. We can't just turn a fan on or turn the air conditioning on. There's nowhere placed for that heat to go, so we had to switch to uh, panels that would fold out. And the reason that spacecraft have panels that fold out is because you can radiate the heat away immediately into space and not into your spacecraft. And we've also created a, <clears throat> a cold plate. One side of the spacecraft never faces the sun, and it's isolated, thermally isolated from the rest of the spacecraft. And that's where all the chips are connected to. So the chips stay at minus 40 or minus 50 degrees just you know passively. We don't have any active coolers. And so that allows us to have very sick, good signal-to-noise ratio on the, on the imaging chips. But other things like the batteries, um, you know, they like to be warm. So we keep them on the warm side of the spacecraft that's facing the sun. Now, on that side of the spacecraft, we do have a lot of insulation trying, you know, trying to stop the heat from getting in the first place. But heat will invariably get in. Um, So we have the bottom of the spacecraft acts as as a heat sink. So all the heat goes there and radiates away. Um, So the center is where the main mirrors and the optics are. And that we have to keep... We don't want a temperature differential of 250 degrees on one side and minus 50 on the other. So that's why it's isolated in, in a central chamber. But it's also the reason we're using silicon carbide or we're looking at zero door, some kind of glass that doesn't expand on one side and contract on the other side <clears throat> just because there's a, a difference in temperature. And because you don't want warping, you don't want your images to get out of focus. It's uh, a, half of it. It's amazing that, you know, halfway through the build, 
how many tiny things start coming up and you just think like every single thing that can go wrong, you have to have several plans for here, include like collimation. Right. right. You know, you think you're not going to send somebody up there with a little like laser collimator. <laughs> Hold this wrench. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, a, and an Allen key. And an Allen wrench. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. To be up there collimating Although this I thing. would volunteer, I would go. Yeah. I'd collimate it for you. Yeah. At least if you drop the Allen wrench, it's not going to hit your optics. <laughs> I mean, NASA does. You know, when they shoot Hubble up, they do that sort of thing. But, you know, um, but with this, you know, you've got to have it to where no matter what happens, you can take care of it. So even, you know, the mirrors are going to be shaking. Everything's going to be shaking on the spacecraft. You have to think once this is up, we have to be able to not only tip and tilt the mirror, we also have to be able to tip and tilt the sensors, mm-hmm. everything, so that you truly get these flat images. Because otherwise, you're, there's nothing you can do about it once it's there. So how, how's that going to happen? Yeah, so <clears throat> we actually have the secondary has X, Y, and Z positioners. So... Um, once we get into orbit, one of the first things we do is collimate the spacecraft because the chance of it actually being in collimation after you know, nine amazing. G's of <laughs> that would be amazing of vibration and yeah. be like, wow, that'd be a miracle if that happened. So <laughs> we'll, we'll, the X, Y position will actually center the, the secondary and the secondary is, is spherical. So it doesn't have to be, it's not as, uh, it's, I should say more forgiving than say, a. uh, the whole point of this design, right, is to have that forgiving secondary exactly, yeah. for collimation reasons. So an RC is really difficult to, yeah, to, that would to be collimate, impossible. even on the ground. Yep. You know? um, but that's why we went with the Doc Kirkman design, because it's a lot yep. more forgiving. Right. Um, and then the the chips themselves, we have XY positioners on those as well. And that's not only to uh, help collimate, um, but we can actually do dithering um, so we can get better, uh, better uh, sampling. Uh, yeah. Then the chips could I give by themselves. Yeah, because if you think about it, and for people that that haven't ever dealt with sensor tilt, what happens is the further something is away, so you have this this place where light comes to a point, and that's your focus, mm-hmm. right? You want that point to be even across the whole sensor. But if the sensor is say tilted on one side forward and the other side back, then if you think about it, there, there's going to be focus somewhere along the sensor. But the part that's too far forward is going to be out of focus, and the part that's too far back is going to be out of focus. So when you take a picture, the stars in the image would be really, really tight and perfect in one spot in the image. And then everywhere else in the image, they'd start to bloat out and um, be out of focus. So if you can adjust and tilt that sensor back and forth on both sides, you can get it to where it's completely flat across the entire image and in focus across the entire image. Basically, you have a a depth of focus, you know, that's uh, maybe five millimeters. Yeah. And you have to maintain every part of the chip in that Depth of focus. Yeah. yeah. And the secondary mirror actually moves forward or closer to the sensor and further away from the sensor, right, to um, achieve focus in the first place. Correct, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So because you can't, uh, you know, again, you're not going to fly somebody out there to turn the little focus knob. Right. You know, you got to be able to uh, electronically move that secondary mirror to adjust where the focal point actually lands. Yeah. And the secondary gives us a, a lar- much larger range of focus as well. Because mm-hmm. when you move the secondary, it's like moving the, the knob on the back of the scope three times right, you know, or more. Yeah. So. And so what kind of accuracy will that have on the secondary? Um, boy, now you're hard. You ask me hard questions. Let's see. I it's, mean, I'm just saying. It's going to have it's... two millimeters of movement, yeah. um, but we're talking about nanometers of, of actual yeah, yeah. positioning. So, um it's it's very fine focus, fine, finer than you could actually use. And this is F seven two, right? Seven five. Seven five. So at F seven five, it's way more forgiving than if this were going up at like F two. Right. That's right? So another reason we wanted F seven five. Yeah. So we're yeah we're trying to make the first one work. Yeah. <laughs> trying to not make it as hard. Oh yeah, you launch an F one point two telescope <laughs> yeah. up there, and this thing has zero chance of working. Right. You know, it's awesome. You can say you launched the world's fastest space telescope lens, but um, <laughs> wide field <laughs> infrared survey here, or wide field yeah. survey. <laughs> yeah. But it would never ever achieve focus. Yeah, it's supposed to be fuzzy like that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So where is mission control going to be? Who's gonna Who's gonna be working this thing? Where are you gonna Where are you gonna coordinate all of these? observations and point the telescope and stuff? Uh, well, that's actually up for negotiation right now. We're, we're talking to uh, many investors and also several governments. So that, I don't know where it's going to end up. Uh, it just kind of where the where the money steers us and where the uh, taxes and everything else. There's lots of, and rules and regulations. There's a lot, yeah. a lot of play here. Um, so I don't know where that's going to end up. It's like right you now. said, it's a business, right? And right. those are those are decisions that have to be made on that side with that that in mind. Yeah. But did you think about this, Sean? When you when you first came into my office and told me we're doing this, 
like let's do this i was i just said yes on the excitement alone but <laughs> i didn't i did not think about like the orwellian um issues that this would bring up and the implications that it has across the world did you think about any of that uh yeah at least uh you know what if uh some terrorist guy or whatever tried to use it for yeah anything, that kind of thing well it's it's easy to say you know because i mean obviously this is a this is an american company and and would do absolutely nothing to ever jeopardize jeopardize you know uh national security right right but there are other like what about what about countries like let's talk about north korea right because nobody nobody has any love for for their, <laughs> their policies right at least i don't so i i don't mind i i say point this thing at everything and show anybody you want anything anything in anything that people want to see there right you know to hell with it but um did you think about like the implications that that would have internationally, the fact that anyone can log into this and look back at Earth anywhere they want to see? I mean, they could look at uh, bases if they wanted to, if that's not cared for. Well, we're, we're, now I think about that, and we're thinking about that now. Um, and that is that is a big concern. Um, and there are some countries like Israel that we have a treaty with that right. we're not allowed to look at yeah. high-resolution images. So I right. cannot aim the telescope yeah. at Israel without... Israeli permission. Yeah. There are some ways around some of that, and one is, is to start up subsidiaries in those countries. Mm -hmm. um, we're, we're looking at those those mm -hmm. routes too. Right. Uh, but yeah, we, we don't want to. You know, we're not in this to, to jeopardize national security or take down states or any of that kind of stuff. I and mean, we're we're in this for um, so that everybody can have access to space. Not not only for beautiful images of astronomy, but also you know, hey, help you farm, help you mine, help your business, um, help the environment. You know, we're not. Uh, we're not trying to do some kind of espionage stuff here. Yeah. So, um, but it still it still begs the question, though. I mean, who is going to be managing the time on this telescope? I mean, space. You know, Hubble Space Telescope has a time allocation committee. Almost every space telescope has, or every telescope has, a committee that decides who gets to observe and when. So, surely, you're going to have so, that. Yes. Um, for the the. Astronomy observations, there's no restrictions at all. So we can run an app and they can say, I want to take a picture of M51 for this many seconds at this time. Yeah. No problem. It can be automated. They can do it. You know, no problem. But for ground observation, yeah, we will have you know red, a red flag system mm -hmm. to watch what's being imaged. Okay. Um, we, so also, the... we also have restrictions on, on uh, you know, how, what kind of resolution we can do in certain areas. And it's it's so, pretty easy to block coordinates, right? To yeah. say, hey, this this is off limits, or, or just say for this coordinate area, we can only do three meter resolution. We can't do right one meter resolution, and we can easily downgrade the resolution, you know, after the fact. That that's not mm -hmm. that's not an issue. Um, and there are restrictions also <laughs> on hyperspectral imaging. <clears throat> so so it's like you can take a picture of Area Fifty One and see everybody storming it. You know all this bullshit. <laughs> flying around. But you'll see Dustin be... there. He'll be wearing yeah. the green T-shirt with the with the uh, <laughs> alien mask, the the skin tight green full body suit. But uh, <laughs> that's it's gonna... easier to green screen him out with. You know, in case we had to but, do some special but, uh, CGI on him. But that image is going to come back from Space Fab at like one eightieth of one megapixel. Yeah. You know, just a blur. This pixel is there. Yeah, There's a green there. pixel in there. Is yeah. that Dustin? That's oh, yeah, Dustin. Uh, yeah. I'm wearing this suit <laughs> right now, matter of fact. Storm in Area 51. <laughs> I'm still getting people message me, man, are you going to be at Area 51? I haven't said no to a single person yet. You yeah, know, there's man. no way in hell. It's such right, a ridiculous idea. Right but behind I, you, man. Right behind you. Yeah. I'm telling <laughs> them, man, I'll be there. I'll be there, guys. I'll Just be there. I'll me. see you there. Yeah, it's just a lot of people. Just don't be looking for me, man. Yeah. I'll be there. Don't now. look for me, but I'll be there. <laughs> you can trust it. So for so for stuff that looks down at the earth, there is a can of worms that has to be dealt with. Uh, so uh, apparently, uh, yeah. And that and you're gonna have to you're gonna have to be trusted or prove that what you're downloading is what you say it is at the resolution that you promise. Um, and so, wow, this. This is a little bit scary, isn't it? Well, this is why Randy's the CEO here and not me, right? Because I just be like, look at whatever you want. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> man, whatever. Look at, yep. If it's not this country, look at everything, you know. But that's that's why that's why Randy's doing that job and not me, right? And we ha we actually have to get permits and permission to to image, um, and we have to tell them what we can do and what our capabilities are, wow. and then they'll come back and say you can't do this and this and this. So, 
Um, and we'll start from there. <laughs> Yeah, that's actually that was actually a factor in some of the early SpaceX launches. Turns out they did not get the required permission, I think, from NOAA or somebody right. uh, that they had to get um, to be able to image the Earth. And they yeah, was immediately so got it, though. but it, it took a while, was, you know. That was so ridiculous. I mean, they told on themselves. They were clearly not trying to pull anything, you know, and they still got in trouble for it. And it's like, they're the ones that came out and said, hey, guys. <laughs> We may have accidentally done something here that harmed no one, but, and they're like, but was it totally literally law legal? Yeah. Let's make a big deal out of this now that no one was harmed at all. So, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Well, Well, the nice thing that's happening though, is a lot of the, the regulation is easing on small spacecraft like this. Yeah. Um, the administration now is, is really trying to push, um, a lot of that regulation out of the way, which is, it does help. Um, we've run into some other issues with the change things now because the regulation is changing, but it's changing more in our favor than, than against us. So, um, we'll, what, we'll see what happens as we come, becomes launch time. So. What about security? How do you keep this thing secure so that someone else doesn't uh, hack it and take it over? Then they could look yeah, at whatever they wanted. Yeah. Oh, that's a good uh, question. The, the federal law says it has, everything has to be encrypted. Mm-hmm. So it's all going to be encrypted. Every, all the transmissions up and down are encrypted. So the laser the frequencies space, that you're using to communicate are going to be encrypted. Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, that's a law. We, we can't send open broadcasts um, from the satellite. Clear text passwords. <laughs> right. <laughs> My password is one two three four five. Log on in. Yeah, no. One two three password. <laughs> well, wh- what about the launch date? Is it still? Uh, has it changed much, or is it still what your initial plans were? When are you going to launch? Um, we're still hoping for the end of next year, but uh, that paperwork end of, uh, regulations. Yeah, the okay. the bureaucracy, bureaucratic stuff is really slowing us down right, right That's now. What happens with all businesses, though? I mean, it's just a sea of paperwork. Just, yeah. a, just an especially ocean. when you got to deal with governments and SEC. Yeah, and all that stuff. that's it's the just... thing is that the things that should take it takes it takes you know five minutes to actually sign and complete the document, but it takes five months to get it right. You know, to get everything there, and that's that's the issue with these things. But so the nice thing is we we started our A round of funding um, as of last week. Uh, so we finally got through all that paperwork. That paperwork took five months yeah. to, just to start yeah. that. So now yeah. it's finally started. So we're we're now raising again for for our, our A round, which is exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, a round. What does lot. that mean? I don't I don't know much about investing stuff. What does that mean? Oh, okay. So so we had our, our seed round of funding. We raised like 170 grand um, last year mm-hmm. uh, through uh, WeFunder, and um, now we're going to go. What's the, the A round? Is is the first round beyond the seed round? So this is when venture capitalists come in and they say, you know, ah. here's the the few million dollars you need, um, and then that also sets your valuation for the company. How much is the company worth at that point? So, um, and that's where we're at right now. And we've already talked to a couple of venture capitalists and had one come down as of last week. So that yeah. looks pretty good. Um, so we'll see. We'll see where that goes. I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah. Well, it just has so many capabilities. This is, um, you know, I have the easiest job in the world. Marketing for this company is, I mean, it sells itself. Yes. Yeah. It's the easiest job in the world. There's nobody. If you're not excited about this project, it is literally only because you do not have your brain turned on. There's nothing. <laughs> we can't help there you there. There's nothing. Yeah. There is nothing about the idea of all humans having access to, you know, eyes in space. That shouldn't be exciting. I mean, it's it's it should be. I mean, it was right on the line of impossible forever until now. Mm-hmm. And now it's like, hey, you can log in and see from space, you know, not just have a satellite that's sending you signals, but that you're interacting with personally. Right. right. You are controlling that idea is it it blows me away. I cannot believe this thing is sitting here in front of me, you know, and um you know, even when you told me about the idea, I got chills. But now seeing it, it's just like, how is this real? How is this real? But I think that, you know, it's that's the problem is the time. Because, you know, every time every time that Jenny and I ever talk to an attorney about anything, whether it's acquisitions or whatever, it's like, you always ask the same questions that SpaceFab's dealing with now. It's like, well, how long will this take? This will be two months. And we're just like, all right, so we're going to call you in nine months when you're halfway done. Right. <laughs> And then we'll go from there, you know? It sounds like you've been around this this block a couple of times, Dustin. It's, it's how it goes, man. It's how it goes. But, you know, the thing is, though, is that this has already passed all of the stages. There was a time there when we first started talking about it and when we were all like, all right, so we've got to make real commitments now. We've really got to dive in. we got to try to make this thing happen. Where I was very nervous because these things fail, but they fail very fast, you know, because you start to run into the roadblocks and you realize we're just in over our head. 
we can't do this. We don't have the technology. We don't have the funding. We don't have whatever it is. But this is already past all those stages. Now it's just it's just sealing things up, finishing the last pieces, and deciding who you know SpaceFab is partnering with to make it happen mm. to best support the company. But it's not like there's anything now at this point, especially technology wise. I mean, you you've done it. Yeah, no, there was a, a lot of hurdles when we first began, you know. Uh, yeah. And those are the ones that shut projects down. Yeah, but and we got through all the all the hardware is ninety percent designed. You know, we got through everything that was hard. Um, yeah. So now I'm. I'm not I really about that. thought when we first started talking about the uh, the heat transfer issue, I thought here it is. This is the thing I've been worried about because I just I could not see a path through that. The more you and I talked about it, the more I thought this is this is the deal breaker. I don't know how you do it because there, at the time, it looked like there's no solution for this. This is too small a box with too much heat transfer. Like there's too much heat here because the solar panels. There's no way through this, but it's a it's a very elegant design. It's amazing what you came up with, and like you clearly uh, have a vision for this. It's incredible. Oh, thank you. Well, the website is spacefab.us, guys. So go check out that they have some images there uh, that you could check out what Dustin's talking about as well uh, to see some images. And you're going to post this on the. Uh, Instagram account too, right, Dustin? Yeah, yeah. I'll probably post this thing everywhere. I mean, it, it really it gives me chills yeah. sitting here looking at it. So, um, yeah, I'll, I'll post it. I just did a, a short live video that's already up. Um, so that'll I'll keep oh, that okay, up on cool, my page cool. too, so that when we post this podcast, you know, next week, that it'll still be there. But yeah, this thing's incredible. Yeah, some visual uh, entertainment there to go along with this audio. Um, well, can I ask you what is uh, what does NASA think of? Does NASA know what you're doing, and what do they think if they do? Well, didn't NASA call? Yeah, they 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 emailed me today. Actually, um, I got emailed by the the guy that heads up um, their CubeSat. I guess it's a CubeSat division or program, and uh, he was emailing asking about this. He wants to see it at one of the conferences that you'll be attending, so we can get. Yeah, you we, all. we we've at AAS meeting. Uh, we've talked to NASA guys a couple times. Yeah. And uh, they've asked to put their own payloads on our chassis. So you know what I love about NASA. I mean, honestly, we we do a, a ton with them, so it's a daily conversation. But I've never seen NASA anyone at NASA be anything but supportive of projects like these and things that they're not even involved in. Mm -hmm. It's like they will share anything they can. They will help any way they can. You know, they they just want to see this progress happen, and that's all they're hungry for. And I, I bet I deal with you know. 70 people, 80 people, you know, the pro services team deals with hundreds. And I've never once seen somebody be like, oh, well, we know how to do that, but that's for us. And not yeah. you. you know, it's yeah. always the same thing. Like today, this guy emailing me, I know the only reason he's doing it is because he's going to say, we have a lot of experience in this realm and we want to see it work. So maybe we can point out something that you may be missing. That's yeah. all it's going to be. You know I always welcome those. That's happened a few times. A NASA engineer comes and says, have you thought about this? And yeah. I'm like, uh, <laughs> and then you want to say, yeah, I thought about that. Yeah, you know no problem. Like, yeah, that no, that's when you go back and go like, oh, crap. Uh. Yeah. yeah. And then you're like, we were building an eight-figure paperweight. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, but it, 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 we, none of this would be possible without NASA. Um, almost every day I'm going through NASA documents and papers and looking yeah. at their research. And like yesterday, I was looking at drag figures for. God, I'm so glad that's your job and not mine. <laughs> <laughs> for atmospheric reentry and stuff, you know, so they've really pioneered everything that we were on the shoulders of giants here. That's is the best. Man. Yeah, I know the, they, the, they, they, that's the infrastructure we're talking about. They've made a lot of exactly. things possible. They've they've blazed that trail. Mm -hmm. They catch so much heat, but it's just everything that humanity does and does well. I feel like you can credit NASA for it <laughs> in some way. You know, <laughs> it's had a hand in it in some way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, coincidentally, um, I got a an email about uh, the first podcast that we did on Face uh, Space Fab uh, back in October. I got an email from James, and I just wondered if I could. Add, he's got a question for you. So, can I read that question to you and see if you can answer? Oh, it? Sure. Go ahead. So he is going. Uh, this is again James from the Deep Astronomy website. He says, "I have been listening to your podcast for a long time now. I have just listened to the podcast with SpaceFab and how and how they are releasing their space telescope for the public to use. If the camera can cover a one point three meter square one point three square meters on Earth, what ground could it cover on the Moon? Would it be able? Would the camera be able to photograph, say, the tracks or even a lunar vehicle on the moon? And that depends on where the spacecraft is um, from Earth orbit. No, there, there's no telescope big enough on the Earth to see that um, from the Earth because we're so far away. Two hundred. The resolution would be would just not be there, right? 
So that's, right. that's what but, we are is 250,000 miles away from Earth. Right. Yeah. So you're trying to look at a footprint 250,000 miles away. There's just mm-hmm. no optical device that's good so enough to do that. What would be me. the relative scale? Are you looking at like the size of a city? Would that be the resolution? Is it the size of a well, building? It's, it's 0.6 arc seconds. Uh, so yeah, maybe you could see a city on the moon. Now, if we put one of our, our CubeSats in orbit around the moon, we could put it at 100 kilometers altitude and then we get... Is that what we're doing next, Sean? Sure, why not? <laughs> I feel, like, I feel yeah. like we need to launch one to the moon. Man. Well, I'll tell you, real... you know, that you bring that up. That it's, a, it's also very coincidentally that India has launched their lunar uh, rover mission in such a way, they did it on uh, Monday, they did it in such a way that it's going to orbit the Earth in progressively increasing orbits until it gets out far enough that the lunar gravity takes hold of it and pulls it toward the moon. And that's a way to get to the moon. It takes like 45 days for that to happen, but that's a way to get to the moon without having to build a gigantic rocket to take you 250,000 miles. So oh, certainly in our, our second generation, we actually have an ion engine built on board. Um, in fact, we, one of our patents is a ion engine accelerator that we use to make ion engines more efficient. Mm-hmm. And with that, we, we can leave Earth orbit and go into lunar orbit. Um, so we have the technology. We have the technology. We can. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, once we're in lunar orbit, uh, we can go as low as 100 kilometers and we can see 0. 0.3, uh, 0. 0.3 meters or 30 centimeter resolution. So we now that would see. be that would be really, really cool. Uh to be out there. And that's another example though of, of infrastructure paving the way for small business or not so small businesses. I wouldn't say space fab is small, but the, you know, to get out and do these kind of really literally moonshot ideas. And so that they were business cases. So this is really cool. Um, and Aerojet Rocketdyne has developed the, what they call SCP solar electric propulsion, uh, that also was meant to get you cheaply around the solar system. So who knows, uh, where, where, where this can lead us. So it's, it's incredible. The ion engine was actually what started all this, right? You built an ion engine in, on your kitchen table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Until I got in trouble with my mother and wife. But, I mean, uh, that's something to get in trouble for, though. Yeah. Sean. I feel like that's not that's not some normal thing that someone thinks like I got to worry about this if I marry this guy. Yeah, you know. Yeah, so I, 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 I was actually I started as a particle accelerator slash ion engine. Basically, the same that's thing. That's not better. Yeah, it's not better in any way. Well, I, I built that on the kitchen table with a, a little um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, cloud chamber just to see if i could shoot uh, ions through the cloud so you chamber. didn't have a goal in mind you just wanted to build a particle that's right i remember yeah, this story yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was just playing around yeah. so i remember, remember this story <laughs> you're sitting around your kitchen table building a cloud chamber uh, a particle accelerator that's right and my, my wife <laughs> i'm running it at like a, a fourteen thousand volts right and i've got these magnetic constrictors on it to constrict the beam and my wife walks through opening a can of tuna <laughs> and the tuna can goes skunk right to the, to the particle accelerator <laughs> And I'm like, oh shit! And I shut it down. You know, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> if I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times. Do not accelerate particles in the kitchen. Right. God, I mean, how much of this kind of stuff does she have to deal with? Like, do, do you stop, or are you still? Are you oh still my doing God, that I get stuff? Yelled at every day. Do you? Uh, yep. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell is this thing in the garage in the way? Can't park my car. Why? Why was it in the kitchen, man? I feel like I had the biggest table. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Honey, why um, are all the batteries out of our Prius? Why why are they on the, the kitchen table now? God, I bet your neighbors had no idea their lives were at risk. <laughs> <laughs> Just low levels of neutrons. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. Don't worry okay. about it, man. They'll decay. Yeah. They'll <laughs> <laughs> decay. Just look. Stick around a few hundred million years, and this <laughs> this won't be a problem anymore. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Just don't worry about it. They'll decay. Half life here is only a couple hundred thousand years. You'll be fine. Yeah. Uh, so what happened is I, I I videotaped that <laughs> this happening right, and then uh, I, I met Randy at a meetup actually for for satellite, and um, when he saw my video, he was like, dude. How'd you do that? Uh, so he was already working on this. Uh, yeah, he's just as crazy as you are. Man. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Mad scientist. That's why yeah, I love it. Freaking you know? Chernobyl on Elm Street here, you know? It's yeah. Like, wow. When you get the two of them in the same room, it's like, it is the most entertaining thing ever. It's just like, <laughs> just <laughs> the brains that don't fit in any any room you're ever going to be in, you know? And you just listen to them talk and it's like, this isn't real. Yeah. This isn't real what you guys are talking about right now. And then they build it. 
But um, let, let me ask you another question because I've gotten some really weird emails about it. Um, you know, just from from talks I've done and things, I always get people that come up and ask questions afterwards, and it's always about space fab, you know. And um, the some of the people that are just interested in the project and things, you know, you get a lot of people excited, but then you also bring out some of the the really strange birds, you know. Yeah. Have you gotten any uh, funny things from you know people asking questions about it recently? Any oh, God, I don't even want to. I don't even want to say. Can I it, see but... the UFOs in my front yard or something like that. Yeah, I get some of that. Um, yeah, what's the strangest thing you've gotten so far? Uh, <laughs> uh, let's see. Yeah, I had, uh, no, that was actually when I worked at the, the shop, but the, the people are seeing colorful aliens in their front yard and wondered if they could. Uh, are you getting anything about this one? I've, not, not really a lot of strange stuff. More like, hey, can you be part of my Bitcoin type company I'm starting and things I've, like that. I've had two people recently ask me, I guess there was a podcast that went out that was talking about um, cities underneath the ocean. And two people recently have asked me if there's any way for us to put on the maps where they can look to see those cities in the ocean. And if the government would allow us to penetrate the oceans to see those cities. And um, <laughs> I, don't, I was just like, um, yeah, man, I got you. I got you covered. <laughs> we we're like this with the government. We got you covered, you know, but I, I don't even know what they're talking about, but I've had two people recently ask me about that. Have you heard that? No, that's new to me. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I, I've seen a lot of things about, you know, hey, Google's hiding this spot. You, yeah. can you look at that kind of thing. Yep. Sure, yeah, I get not? that stuff too. The area 51 thing's obviously huge right now. I, I'm having a lot of people ask me about that too. Like, Hey, can, can you see it? I'm like, well, it's not launched yet. So you can't watch what's not going to happen in the first place unfold. Yeah. But you know, <laughs> Um, I don't think that this is going to be pointed there anyway. No, I, I definitely think we'll get more of that as as it goes into orbit and yeah. gets more well known. I've I've noticed that on your blog that you've gone to like you went to the AAS in January to uh, to announce and talk about this with fellow astronomers, and that you're also you're giving out awards for different kinds of observing time. Is that right? Things like the best scientific, the best professional proposal, the best amateur astronomy proposal and things like that. Um, how, how is this being received? Uh, for example, at the AAS, how is this, what, what's been the reaction? Oh, they're actually quite excited about it. Um, and it was actually sent out, uh, WS sent out a, a reminder or a notice to, to all the astronomers uh, on their list. And uh, we did get some proposals. Um, we actually got a proposal from a, a guy from University of Hawaii uh, for supernova uh, surveys, and um, we, he was the winner, so we, we chose his, his project. So you have a committee uh, or somebody who looks at these proposals and decides who to uh, Yeah, actually, so, so it's, of course, you know, I'm, I look at them and make sure that they're legit. Um, and when after I approve it, I've, I've actually passed the papers around to uh, other contacts and uh, scientists that we know. Um, say, Hey, you know, what do you think about this? Right. And, um, so I, I get the feedback and then we, we decided, uh, which uh, well, proposal see, where was I was going best. with this and to follow up on Dustin's point was I was going to submit a proposal to look at and look for Nibiru with the hope that, you know, I could find this planet <laughs> that, that NASA is hiding from us, which they do, I'll you know, they actually hide Neptune sized planets that are on a collision course to earth and wipe and threatening to wipe out civilization. So I was hoping, but you actually read the proposal and actually look at it on yeah. merit. So yeah, we, we have a circular file for that one. Yeah. <laughs> no, they, they uh, NASA pays Sean a lot of money to hide that from you. Tony. I wish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where's my check? I know. When I first heard that, my response is NASA is hiding a planet the size of Neptune. How are, how are they doing that? Are they did they launch a big disc that they put between us and Nibiru? And if so, wouldn't we see the disc? I mean, what? How do you hide a planet? And they never have a good answer. But of course, NASA is in fact hiding Nibiru from us. It's on the way, and it's gonna. It was gonna hit us in December twelfth, twenty twelve. Did you guys I, feel I mean, it? Amateurs, amateurs pick up a slight brightening in a galaxy out of one of hundreds of millions of galaxies you know, uh, with their telescopes every day. So why, why couldn't they pick up an extra planet that appeared? I agree, well, especially you... the size of Neptune, because that happens to be the way we found Neptune was we 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 saw the effect of the planet before we ever saw the planet itself. So we knew Neptune was there, even though 
by looking at all the other planets we could see, we knew that there was another planet there. And sure enough, we found it. Uh, I think it was uh, Herschel that found it uh, yeah. through his telescope. So, you know, can't hide gravity. We, we would see the effect of a planet this size on the other planets that we could see. And yet they insist, they insist that Nibiru is being hidden from us by NASA. Well, you are you Joe? You really don't know the answer to this, Tony? What? How you hide a planet so, the size of Neptune? No, I do not. If you know the answer, please yeah, explain it to me. So the way that it works is that on the flat Earth, there's a dome above it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Got it. All right. Say yeah. no more. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's not hard to go up there and make corrections to the painting. Tony. Yeah. <laughs> Just got to adjust the turtles underneath. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. You Just shift adjust- one turtle, three turtles down. <laughs> and, and they all shift. Just like that. Yeah, yeah. They all shift. And just like that, man, the planet's gone. Okay. Got I it. I can't believe so- you don't know this. Yeah, you're right. I I don't know where I went to school. So yes, it was definitely okay. So that's how it's done on the shifting turtles. Uh, yeah. You stop on feeding Earth. one of them, and then they start moving. And next thing yep. you know, man, planet's gone. Yep. Okay. Infinite turtle syndrome. Should have known. Okay. Thank you for that. I appreciate the clarification. Yeah, you got it, man. I'll help anytime. Yeah, yeah. You're there for me. I know you always are. So okay. Well. Thanks. Now that that's been cleared up, but, but in all, but really though, it sounds like when before we're saying that, well, this is a space telescope that anybody can use. You're not actually going to say no, if somebody wants to point it and try to find Nibiru, are you? I mean, no, why would I? Yeah. Well, one thing, one thing that I never liked is that, um, with observatories, professional observatories, you know, some, even a professional puts a proposal and it's not approved by the committee or they don't like what he's looking for or, you know, it's, it's rejected. You know, there's always a committee that approves or disapproves things. Right, because it's always I, I oversubscribed. Ho- there's always way more observer uh, requests right. than there are time in the day, so or observing day, so right. that's why. Right. I mean, and sure, there, there's a lot of quacks in the cases out there, but there are some people that have that want to look at something different. Right. And that's how discoveries are made. So I say, hey, if you want to look at something, go ahead. Just task the telescope and look at whatever you want. You know, just put your credit card in, and there you go. Yeah. So yeah, I, I want to yeah. offer that capability. And they may spend, a, they may pay for a hundred hours to look for Nibiru, but who knows what they'll actually find. Yeah, they could find something right? else, right? Yeah, exactly. That would be cool. And it would be a good way, I think, to get people who ordinarily would not be engaged in astronomy in a serious way, like the people who are convinced of NASA hoaxes, that they might actually realize, you know, that, hang on, you really, this really is a bigger problem than I thought it was. And I, I like that aspect of it a lot. So in a way, I kind of hope a lot of people who think the Earth is flat or that Nibiru is being hidden uh, do use the telescope um, to try and prove their case. I think that would be a very honest approach. If they were honest in their desire for truth, then they would approach this in a way when they'd pay for time on a telescope like this to say, well, how is what I'm seeing through SpaceFab reconciled with what I think reality is? And does it reconcile in any way and that's an honest approach and i hope they do it i do that would be great Uh, nibiru finders nibiru believers or whatever you call them if if you want to try and find it then uh go out and and make a systematic effort to do that and uh tell us what you find out more power to you sean are you doing um you doing any traveling soon where people can come out and listen to you speak or see the telescope or anything um, let's see. Well, I'll go to Hawaii for the Amos uh, conference. And that's uh, in August, right? Uh, September, I think. September? Is yeah. It? And then we're going to AAS, which will also be in Hawaii. Got yeah. to Hawaii I'll be twice. out there in Hawaii with you. Yeah, I'll, okay. be, I'll be there for Amos. I got a lot of travel. What's Amos? Me, but It's uh, a big, big convention out in Hawaii for uh, uh, a lot of, wow, how do SSA, yeah, space situational awareness. Um, oh, okay. all the big, all the big players out there for uh, space junk, man, our namesake. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's that's what it's for. But it's in Hawaii every year, so uh, poor us, right? We got to go. Oh, Maui yeah, yeah, got to go twice this year. Oh, yeah. Did you have to go twice? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I well, go, it, I go it, for it's it in Amos. Maui. I think the the winter meeting of the AAS is out there. So right. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah I go for uh, I go for this, but. Um, I, I don't end up out in Hawaii very often, actually. And I know there's a ton of astronomy out there. So it's kind of surprising that we don't end up out there more. But I'll be in Arizona. You going to Space Fest? When is that? That is uh, the next, not next weekend, but the weekend after. So the 10th or the 8th through the 10th. No, I wasn't planning that, but maybe I can. Uh, where is it? Tucson? Yeah. Or? Yeah. We'll be down in Tucson for that. Um, and then 
uh, Tony, I need to talk to you too, because I'd like to still get you out there with me to uh, Space Fest. And then the next day I fly out to Pennsylvania for a talk out in uh, Harrisburg area. Okay. But um, yeah, we need to we need to meet up for some of these things. And if I figured some of our listeners may want to come hear you speak, man, is there, can we post your speaking schedule or anything like that on um, the Space Fab site? Yeah, we can. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll make sure to get that up. And, uh, you know, it's fascinating stuff. And the more people that can see this, the better. It just, uh, it's one thing to hear about it. But when you're sitting here and you can see this thing, it just, you realize how game changing this really is, you know? So I want to, I want to provide that opportunity to whoever's interested. All right. And and we will be traveling a lot more in the next few months cause, because yeah. we are raising funds. So right. we got to fly to where the investors yeah. are. So. Yeah. So you'll be in D.C. a lot. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. <laughs> Actually, it looks like San Francisco a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's where a lot of the venture capitalists are, I imagine, that would be up there for that. So, well, right. good luck. I hope I hope the, so, yeah. would you call it Series A? A funding? Yeah, Series A, right. Yeah, uh-huh. I hope that goes uh, as well as we all hope it does. And um, that... Uh, Keep us posted. I hope you'll come back and let us know how things are going as the year progresses. So you're looking at a launch, would you say the end of 2020? And uh, yep, yep. If, if things go well and, and as fast as they should, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, bureaucracy might slow us down a bit. But As my grandmother said, what you used to say is the good Lord's willing and the creek don't rise. It'll be the end of 2020. So, all right. Yeah. <laughs> well, good. Okay. Well, we have been talking with Sean League. He is a co-founder of an amazing company called SpaceFab, and their their website is spacefab.us. You got to check them out. They are launching a CubeSat sized space telescope that we are all going to get access to, and it's an exciting time to be an amateur astronomer. So, if you want to learn more, check out their website. And Dustin will be posting on uh, the Space Junk Podcast instagram some pictures of what he's been holding on to this entire time and uh, while we've been recording so check that out as well and i guess i guess we'll go ahead and wrap it up with this and on behalf of dustin gibson and sean league i want to thank you all so much for listening and as always keep looking up space junk is produced by deep astronomy and sponsored by opt telescopes in carlsbad california please visit our website at spacejunkpodcast.com also please send any questions and comments or ideas for new episodes to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com <laughs>